guest is Gretchen Wallace. She is the founder of Global Grassroots. Gretchen, welcome. Thank you. And can you tell us what the organization is? I'd be delighted to. Um, Global Grassroots is a nonprofit organization that works specifically with women survivors of war in post-conflict countries. Right now we're focused on Central Africa. And what we do is identify among some of the most marginalized of these women, women who are widows, sexual violence survivors, living on $2 a day, maybe they've only had a primary school education. We find still among these women those who have ideas for social change in their communities. They may want to work on domestic violence issues or water access or literacy or girls' education, and we help them uh, through our program called the Academy for Conscious Change. We help them heal from trauma and uh, develop leadership skills in order to take their ideas, uh, and, and we help them um, through consulting and training and funding, take those ideas all the way to fruition as a sustainable, um, tiny nonprofit organization working for women's rights. You know, one of the things I found interesting when we were talking before was we t in this country we tend to have this image of these women as victims, purely victims, and they know what they need. And apparently Absolutely. you're like one of the few, yeah, you're one of the few who actually listens to what they're saying. Absolutely. I was struck myself in the, you know, with the, the moments that I was out searching for what I could do in the world to make a difference, mm -hmm. that I really didn't have the solutions, that the women in these communities, they are the closest to their families and their caretakers of community. They know exactly what it is that they need to do to advance their lives, and they're the ones as women and previously as girls who have the least access to education and resources um, to know how to do it. And it just struck me in my travels and my conversations with women at the grassroots level in places like South Africa and Eastern Chad and refugee camps that um, this is where change was happening. And if there was a way that I could support these change agents uh, through training and funding that they that change would just happen from the grassroots level up. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing that we tend to forget. People do know what they need better than we do looking from the outside. Really, honestly, I hate to say it, but we really don't see these as people just like us, simply in different circumstances. I agree with you, and, and there's, there's a tremendous amount of very good intention among oh, yeah. uh, people in the West that want to work to support the disadvantaged. But I think what we need to remember is how crucial it is to work in partnership with mm -hmm. local communities to be willing and able to deeply listen to what not only they need, but what their ideas and solutions are for fixing those needs and not to assume mm -hmm. that just because we have access to education and technology and you know all sorts of range of ranges of resources that we know best and that's core to the global grassroots philosophy of what we call conscious social change
you know, I don't even like to use the word empowerment. A lot of people call this kind of work women's empowerment because that mm-hmm. still suggests that we are doing something to another person. I'm empowering you. Oh. Women are already powerful. They just haven't had um, access to all of the tools needed to um, move forward to take their wisdom to the next level of action. You know, one one story that comes to mind around this that is um, a good example of you know, the way that we're working with communities is in um, in a village on the outskirts of Kigali, which is the capital of Rwanda. There's a community called Gahanga, where like many parts of Rwanda, and in fact, likely many parts of the continent of Africa and, and other developing countries, women have to walk on average about eight hours a day to go collect water. And in a place like Rwanda, where it's very mountainous, this journey is up and down hills. In the places where we work, women are carrying about 10 gallons of water back up a hill, three or four miles. And that's what they have okay, to do. Okay, just to give people, just to give people a um, good image of this, one of those big water bottles that you see in water coolers is five gallons. Yes. And yes. most of us cannot put that into the cooler. And you're saying they're carrying the equivalent of two of these. That's correct. Wow. Two jerry cans, as they call them. That much water has to go that day towards the uses of 8 to 10 people in their household for drinking, cooking, bathing, washing clothes, cleaning their house, and any other things that you might need them for. If if you're raising animals or you have a garden, you're going to need, obviously, more water. So it's Mm -hmm. very scarce. And imagine if you're pregnant you know, you're going to be at risk of a miscarriage. That's going to be impossible to carry that water. Or if you're elderly or disabled, you've, you've lost a leg in a war um, or otherwise disabled or blind, like this kind of a journey is impossible. So some of the women might send their children, and they tend to send girls to go and get water, which means girls wouldn't go to school. Mm-hmm. which makes it that much harder for women to advance if girls aren't going to school. There's also women who will leave before dawn to get there sooner, and that puts them at risk of opportunistic sexual violence as they walk um, around in the dark alone. Um, and then, of course, the water itself is not clean. It's contaminated, and that leads to diarrhea, which is um, a major cause of of um, children's death in a lot of these Regions. So, water is a huge problem. It also, it also, diarrhea increases the need for water. Exactly. So, in this particular community of Kahanga, there was one more issue that was of primary importance to them, and uh, that was sexual exploitation. For those women who couldn't go and get water on their own, they had the opportunity to hire a man to go get it for them on a bicycle. And if they couldn't afford to pay for it because there was a fee, then as one woman said to us, you know, your children are coming home from school. You need your water to cook rice and beans. You do what you have to do to get that water. And many of these women were being forced to trade sex for water every single day. So this group of women um, that we trained, and there were 19 of them, and they call themselves hard workers is the name of their organization. (laughs) 
Um, and they decided this was the number one priority in their community, and it's an issue that is not spoken about easily. So as a nonprofit, if I went in there and said, oh, you need – you need water in your village. We're going to build a well, and which community leaders would like to run this? It's possible that the same men who are exploiting women would step up and run the well. This wow, is, would is, never have a, known of that issue. That is a very good point that I don't And think so in this know. case, we had the chance to really ask the women what's of greatest priority to you and what do you want to do about it. So these women um, decided they were going to launch their own water venture. They would install a tank next to a church in the middle of the village, and the water that ran off the roof would be collected by gutters and purified in their tank, and they would sell the water to those who could afford to pay for it so that they could be certain to give it away for free to all the vulnerable women who had previously been exploited. They were able not only to serve initially a 1,000 people in their community, but they had enough money to start paying for orphan school fees and women's health insurance. And then they went on to start a microcredit revolving loan fund where they would loan out $50 every month to the woman who needed it most. What we've learned through our teams, and again, um, we are not the experts. Um, we look at the, these teams as the experts on the issues that they're addressing, mm -hmm. and and uh, they conduct studies within their communities on different issues like domestic violence. And what some of their studies have revealed to us that there is, while there are laws, there's actually very progressive laws in Rwanda protecting women. Rwanda is one of the countries that leads in, in the world in their um, efforts towards gender equality. In fact, Rwanda has more women members of parliament than any other country on the planet. So they're very progressive at a very high level, but on uh, in some of the communities where our teams have worked, many of the um, women don't always know what their rights are and actually have said in some of these studies that they believe it's okay for a man to beat their wives for certain reasons. What I think is, is interesting to note here is that Wanda, with its history of just person abuse, mm -hmm. is leading the way for women. Do you know how that happened, how that evolution occurred? Um, I don't. Ha I am not um, a historical expert, but I do know that um, President Kagame has made enormous strides in supporting um, women's advancement in that country since he has been in office um, shortly after the genocide. Now there's just needs to be more assistance at the grassroots level in rural communities in particular where the understanding of those rights, how to defend and protect and, and claim those rights uh, can be done by local women. And that, that's, that's where many of our groups are working. I want to say this president's name again, Paul Kagame, because he really deserves a lot of credit. But there's something else. If women are going to engage in politics, they're going to have to be educated. And that's a real problem in these areas, isn't it? Well, there are still obstacles to girls staying in school, and that's um, another critical area that many of our teams are working on.
One of the one of the biggest issues for girls in a lot of parts of the world, a lot of anecdotal evidence, is that when girls reach the age of menstruation, they tend to start dropping out of school. And there are a number of reasons that we've discovered um, as to why this happens. One is that girls have a lack of access to sanitary napkins and sanitary supplies they are embarrassed, they don't have um, access to shower facilities or places where they can clean themselves, and they just would rather stay home from school. Um, boys are curious, but they're also aggressive, and in many cases, girls are getting, um, getting attacked um, as well as bullied. They're getting spied on in latrines. Many of these schools do not have bathrooms within the school building. Instead, they have like outhouses or pit latrines in the back of their schools. And in many cases, they looked to me like a, a bunch of brick ruins. Um, anybody could peer over the side and spy on a girl. So again, it made it feel unsafe for girls to come to school as they were getting older. And they would just leave uh, one week a month, once you start dropping out, you fall behind, and then you can't catch up in school. And they had a rate of about only 14, 15% of girls were passing the final national exam. So what a group of teachers came together and with our training um, developed a social venture that would rebuild the latrines to make sure that they had locking doors, they were safe, and they were only for use by girls. They started mm -hmm. anti-bullying clubs in the school, and they created a facility where girls could take a shower and have access to sanitary supplies at school so they didn't feel like they'd have to go home. As a result of this whole program, they in one year went from the 14.7% passing exams to 78% of girls passing national exams, and the year later it was 87%. That's amazing. Now, one thing you said, you trained these uh, teachers. You didn't set up the program. You didn't come up with the idea. How You trained them in what? We call our program Conscious Social Change, and it has three primary components to our training. The first is mind-body trauma healing work. And then we teach conscious leadership skills. And then third, we teach social entrepreneurship skills. Some of the women we're working with, they're illiterate. They've only had one year of uh, elementary school. So we're helping them learn how do you start a nonprofit and manage your money and um, evaluate your effectiveness and design a program that's going to be sustainable. That's what our training is about, and we provide training, and then we provide coaching. We provide the funding to get them started, and then a whole 12 months of a, like a nonprofit of management apprenticeship to help them get to self-sufficiency at the end of that first year. So that um, I'm going to use the word empower here, but in a different way. You empower these women to do the work that they know needs to be done. Exactly. We provide the startup funding, the seed grant, for 100% of their startup costs. But before we will provide that funding, the team has to go through their own process of, of learning how to create a budget, 
for what their first year of operations are going to look like and how they're going to be able to sustain their ventures after we give them funding. We tell them we're only going to give you funding once. We want to know you're going to be able to sustain yourself thereafter so that we are not creating a dependency on foreign funding. Now, we teach a range of skills that we call creative resourcing, and this is what are all the creative ways that you can sustain your program through your own communities. For example, we have one literacy program that um, was teaching 1,300 women how to read, and we gave them the funding to initially buy their books, their workbooks, their chairs, pay for their classrooms. Mm -hmm. But once they got started, they would still need to pay for their teachers' salaries. So one of the principles we teach is how to use waste in your community to generate income. What they decided was being wasted were rocks, sticks, and broken bricks. Now, that was going very that that was going pretty far. If I look around, I don't know that I would have thought of rocks as an asset, but they saw rocks as something that was being wasted. So they said to the women, "We know you're too poor to pay a school fee." But instead of a fee, when you come to class, pick up a rock or a broken brick or a stick and bring it with you and stick it in a pile. And they said, well, if your kids are coming to school here during the day, have them do the same thing. After Mm -hmm. about two weeks, they had such a huge pile of rocks and broken bricks. They could fill at least one dump truck, and they sold it to a construction company as building supplies. And then the women bundled the sticks. And they sold the sticks as firewood to the local community, and they made enough money to pay their teachers' salaries for several months. That That is astoundingly creative and something that I'm guessing you would never have come up with. I would never have come up with that. That is amazing. So mm-hmm. what issue, I asked myself, um, affects businesses more than any other issue? And at the time, I decided that HIV-AIDS was the issue because um, in some places – especially in South Africa that has the highest incidence of HIV-AIDS than any other country in the world, um, employers were hiring two or three people for the same job, knowing that um, one or two of them would die by the end of the year. Wow. I was brought to a township outside of Cape Town uh, to a young woman's little shack. Uh, Her name was Zoleka Natuli. And I sat down with her and her friend who had full-blown AIDS to talk about the issue. And they told me women knew exactly what they needed to do to protect themselves from HIV-AIDS, but they had no power to to do it. They So, um, so uh, what you're saying, even if they had the condoms, they didn't have the power to insist on their use? Yes, that was one dimension okay. of it for certain, okay. um, that men didn't, Men in their community didn't feel that using a condom was manly. Um, And then there was economic vulnerability, that even if women wanted independence, um, they found themselves stuck in certain relationships that were dangerous because they didn't have the economic independence to leave. But even worse was sexual violence, that there was a myth among many men that um, sex with a virgin would cure you of HIV-AIDS, and so many men were (laughs) raping but they were raping young girls and infants even to make sure that they could find virgins. And this I laugh, was, I laugh, but I'm laughing at the absurdity of it. The, the, exactly. It's tragic. It's horrifying. Yeah. So 
sexual violence among youth was a major issue facing the HIV-AIDS epidemic. And when a little girl who was 12 years old in the Lekas community was raped by her 12-year-old boyfriend and his friends because they thought it was their right to have sex with her, so Lekas said, I've had enough. We have to do something about this. And this rape, you know, is high, the highest incidence of rape anywhere in the world It's not at war. It's happening in South Africa at the time. But yet it was still very taboo, very difficult to talk about. So Zaleka, who didn't have a formal education, she didn't have um, a job, she had sort of some some form of a pension that was maybe like welfare, a little bit of money that she could use to buy some bread. She brought about 15 women together to start a dialogue about sexual violence, especially among children, and to combat mm-hmm. this issue. Um, and then she you know, did things like making beads in order to get herself through counseling as a counselor and to start convincing men in her community to also become counselors because a lot of times men wouldn't believe women, so they needed to have men be the counselors. I want to talk about that. Go ahead at this point, but I do want to talk about men getting involved. Sure. And by by the time I met Zuleka, she was... Um, six months into this work, she had 45 people, including a third of the men, meeting three times a week on this topic, creating incredible change in her community. She was only 25 years old. She didn't. She wasn't computer literate. She didn't know how to go and go down to an internet cafe and look up a grant to apply for money. And at that moment, I realized. This is where change is happening. There are women like Zuleka Natuli all over the planet who know exactly what they need to do, and they're doing the very best they can to advance this work without education, without funding. Maybe I can create a program to help these grassroots change agents. That, for me, was my aha moment in creating Global Grassroots. Okay. One thing I want to mention here, we we hear about 12-year-olds going through this and and, you know, 12-year-olds raping as well as being raped and, and uh, women being only 25 and accomplishing this, I think we have to look at the fact that age is different there. I mean, at 12, aren't they close to being adults in these cultures? Well, I, I think there's many differences that's hard to generalize, but... Um, okay. Children do grow up with different kinds of responsibilities. For anyone who's inspired to make a difference, it's critically important to both invest in your own self-awareness and wellness so that you can fully do this work in the world um, and take the time to really listen to the communities that you're working with to understand and honor their wisdom and ideas. This approach of conscious social change and investing in personal wellness along with with social transformation and share the stories of the the many change agents that I've had the privilege of working with in South Africa and the Darfur refugee camps of Eastern Chad and in Rwanda and in Uganda. You can learn a lot about those stories by going to our website. Globalgrassroots.org. Her name is Gretchen Wallace. And no tricks to that spelling. Again, Susan Share at In Other Words. Thank you. In other words. In other words. In other words.